I don't normally title sermons, or at least not in a public way. I usually, in my own head, have some idea in which way we're heading. That might rise to a title. But this morning, I'm not so much thinking about titles, just to put an idea before you as we begin that's connected to Lent, and that is this. The genuine conversion is a really wrenching experience. I mean, there's lots of aspects of religion, lots of what we might call salvation, um, that we wouldn't think of those in those terms, and we wouldn't want to think of those in those terms, because, you know, we want to think rightly of salvation being free and the gift of God, and it's from grace and faith, and that's all obviously true. But conversion in that sense picks up the sense of the term conversion from the Latin, which just simply means the first step. And in that sense, uh, it's an accurate way of thinking about it. But if one is going to think about actually being reshaped and healed and remolded, then, you know, Lent sounds good, but it's not easy. And one reason it's not easy is that growth means change, and change means risk, and the fear and anxiety that gets associated with risk. And so I think all this adds up to the notion that uh, the genuine conversion is a wrenching experience. So we pick that up in the story of uh, Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17, in the sense that 24 years have passed since God called Abram and Sarai. In the text, we've seen that they've proved to be deeply flawed people, lots of wondering in their minds about what's going on, confusion, some fear and anxiety associated with waiting, not knowing how things would turn out. Yet the text also lifts them up to us as people who have generally remained faithful to God's call. And so again, if we can just stop for a moment and read into the humanness of this or try to place before our minds the humanness of this, I think that maybe then we can begin to see that our foremothers and forefathers were learning to trust, to see that God is found in uncertainty and danger and suffering exactly where we tend to see his absence. Did you catch that? The core to this story of Abraham and Sarah is the notion that God was in the uncertainty and God was in the danger and God was in the suffering. The places where we tend to think that means he's absent, right? Because if God were really with me or if I were really with God or if I was really in a good place with God, well, surely that would mean the absence of suffering, the absence of danger, the absence of wondering, the absence of any sort of confusion. Wouldn't that mean that everything is going right. And so I think core to our transformation into Christ-likeness is this idea that God's people don't learn about him through philosophical abstractions, not from what we might call ontology, you know, the, the nature of being, the nature of God's being, and sort of philosophical constructions about that. As, as important as they are, it's not typically the way we learn about God. We typically learn about God from a vital and personal experience of walking with God in the context of his calling and what we might call election or in this passage, of course, covenant. And then the promises of God that get attached to our calling, to our election, to be covenantal partners with him. This is why all throughout the Pentateuch and the, the rest of the Old Testament, you, you find over and over again these phrases of God's mighty hand. You know, that can be an abstraction, I guess, but the people were experiencing something of God and they described it as mighty hand or they would describe what God was doing as a powerful act. Sometimes they would describe a guiding voice 
And it's in this deeply personal way that they came to experience and know who this God of the covenant was. So if we were to kind of summarize where we are in this passage, when we pick it up in Genesis 17, it might go something like this. That Abram, Abraham, my people and my story are gonna flow from you and Sarah. And with everlasting covenant, I am bound to you. Now again, this could just be covenantal theology, right? It could just be another abstraction. Could just be another sort of category, way of thinking about God, you know, and theologically speaking, sort of covenantal theology. Or it could be, let's, let's try this on for size. Or it could be, this is your identity. That, that the first thing that defines you is relationship to God, covenant. It could be something like, this is your destiny. You know, whatever your 401k might be doing in the last few weeks that your destiny includes traffic and stock markets and political movements and economic ups and downs. It includes that. We're, again, I always say we're not dualists. We don't, we don't run from the world. We don't say we have nothing to do with the world. But crucially, I'm saying here, neither do we reduce ourselves to that, that our real identity as humans is in covenant with God. And that's our destiny, and that's our consistent hope. Because as you know, the story of Abraham and Sarah isn't over here in Genesis 17. There are ups and downs to come. And from where would they get consistent hope? Where would they get the sense of who we are? Like, am I my thumbprint? Am I my iris? Am I my login information? Am I the person who might get to a human voice if I push the right numbers? Who am I? What is my identity? What is my destiny? What is my hope? And this text wants to tell us that it's an interactive, ongoing, conversational relationship as God's cooperative friends in covenant with him. And that's how we discover a self. But when we get to our gospel reading, we get to a shocking turn in the story, something that nobody would have saw coming, something that just seemed, just in the terms we would say today, nuts. And that is Jesus begins to tell them, if you look at the first line of your gospel reading in your bulletin, the Greek construction there allows us, I mean, uh, yeah, allows us to see that the newness of what Jesus is saying. So when it says that he began to teach them, the, the idea is that there's a newness here. Um, and, you know, we would say now kind of a shocking newness. And the newness is that the Messiah is going to be killed. And this big idea that the cross is at the center of God's self-revelation. No one saw that coming. Now think back to how we started. Conversion is a genuinely wrenching experience. Changing your mind about who the Messiah was going to be and look like, there couldn't have been anything harder, mentally, spiritually, socially, even politically, religiously. It, it changed everything. It was what we call today game changer, like times 10. Or think of Peter being led by the Spirit to go to Cornelius's house. Before Cornelius and his family can get converted, Peter has to get converted, right? He has to go through this wrenching experience of seeing this sheet let down from heaven and, you know, the rest of the story and seeing the animals and being told, rise, kill, and eat, and like being told he has to be converted. His worldview and mindset has to change before he can obey God in the next step. And this is what I mean when I say conversion implies growth and growth implies change and change implies risk because we could be wrong. What if I just made that up in my head? Can't you see Peter thinking that? What if I had some bad hummus last night and I'm just sort of making this up in my head? 
And he has to sit there and wonder about it. Is, like, is this growth? Come on, feel this with me. Is this growth or is this disloyalty to everything my whole people have been committed to for millennia? Is this growth? Am I hearing the spirit? Or am I actually gonna engage in something that's actually disobedient because of something I made up in my head? And so this is something like what Peter and the first apostles are, are going through when they hear that rejection and suffering in the mission of Jesus. It was unthinkable. It was completely out of phase with Jewish vision and hopes and convictions. I mean, the whole point of the coming of the Messiah was strength. The coming of the Messiah was the rescuer, so it was strength, not weakness. It was victory over the forces of political and social evil, not a shameful defeat by them. And so, of course, Peter objects. I mean, this story would have been kind of worse or would have been more awkward if nobody had objected. <laughs> of course they objected. It was, the, it was 180 degrees out from what everybody thought. And so you have this sort of mutual rebuking happening. And again, the, the, the Greek text is, I don't know if it's meant to be sort of tongue-in-cheek, but the same word that Jesus uses for casting out demons, rebuking demons, this is what Peter and Jesus are doing to each other. So Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus then rebukes Peter, saying these really strong words, right? Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, what's going on here? Probably it's an allusion to Jesus's temptations, Remember when he's tempted by the devil after being out in the wilderness and fasting for 40 days? But probably also something like there's a real weightiness to a fundamental disobedience to God's will and that there's a great significance to in any way frustrating the unfolding of this story. And this is, I think, the core tension of what's happening between Peter and Jesus. And then if you look at your text, there's this important little logical connective where Jesus says, for, for you are setting your mind on the things of man. And again, this is, this is just Jesus saying something like, I know that suffering and rejection and death weren't on man's agenda. And probably, again, just trying to place ourselves in the humanity of this, you know, it was kind of one thing to follow Jesus around and, and sit down and hear him teach these amazing things and watch him heal people and cast out devils and cleanse lepers and raise the dead. That was all probably pretty cool stuff, right? But now it's sort of like, okay, where all that's pointing, where all this is going is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. Like, what is this? And again, I want to say to you, this is why genuine conversion is so wrenching. Because Peter and those first followers weren't the only ones to ever start following Jesus with preconceptions about what that meant. They weren't the only ones who started following Jesus with lots of presumptions about what it meant. And prejudices, and I don't mean by that necessarily just racial prejudices, but, you know, prejudgments about what this is going to be like or should be like. And for Jesus, he kind of rolls that up into our mind. Now, that doesn't mean I think that our emotions and soul and will and social self and all that aren't important. But think of here as something like mindset or worldview. Willard, in his book, The Renovation of the Heart, kind of summarizes the mind saying this, that the mind determines the orientation of everything we do and evokes the feelings that frame our world and motivate our actions. So that what we think or imagine or believe or guess sets the boundaries to which we can will or choose. So now, do you see the tension here? Peter and the first followers are going, no way, not cruciform. I mean, this can mean a lot of other things, but this cannot mean cruciform. 
And Jesus is saying, as long as you're thinking that way, you're thinking completely out of phase with what God's doing. You're, you're thinking in this other direction that is marked by Satan. And if you continue to think that way, then those preconceptions, those presumptions, those prejudices, you will never be able to then follow me. And so you've got to let those things go, but that's really scary because what's going to replace them? Like, what if you've secured yourself your whole life through anger? What if it's the way you managed your marriage, managed people at work, dealt with your neighbors? It's second nature to you. And then you hear in the gospel that anything you can do through anger, you can do better without it. Now, what do you do? Well, I can tell you the first thing you do is you wonder, will that work? Will I be safe? If I can't control others, will I be safe? Will, will I be okay? And so again, if we can just try to empathize with Peter and empathize with these first followers, they're seeing, are you telling me that instead of defeating all the powers over us, you're gonna submit yourself to them and they're just gonna continue to defeat us? Like who would go there? It makes no sense. But changing our mind, changing that which we imagine and believe and guess to be true enables something. And this is why Romans 12, 1 and 2, the first move of formation in Paul's mind. Like if you just think of a basic outline of Romans, you know, you have the first couple chapters of Romans where he's kind of indicting the whole human race and then explaining what that means up to about chapter seven and then kind of explaining how he's worked on it in seven and eight for himself. And then you get to nine, 10 and 11 where Paul's explaining what's happening with Jews and Gentiles. And then he gets to chapter 12 and makes this typical sort of Pauline pivot to say, okay, what does now this all mean? And Paul says, here's what it all means. The transformation of your mind, right? Romans 12, one and two. Let your mind be transformed. Let there be a renewing of your mind, your worldview, your mindset, your, your prejudice, your preconditions, your, you know, your presuppositions about things, your mind, let it be renewed. This is the first move of formation. Or in a very similar pivot in Colossians 3, a typical sort of Pauline pivot, Paul says to set your mind, remember? Set your mind on things which are above. Because in the renovated mind, God stands uniquely and supremely worthy. Set your mind on things which are above. And, and that's an allusion to uh, kingdom, which is an allusion to ruling and reigning, which simpler words would be God expressing himself. Set your mind on the expression of God. And the truest expression of God is in Christ. And core to Christ is cross. Now you're gonna have to get your mind wrapped around that, Jesus is saying to Peter and I think would be saying to us, and then that's a wrenching experience. To die to self on that level is a wrenching experience. It's of grace, no doubt, and it's animated by the Spirit, no doubt. It's empowered by the Spirit, no doubt. It happens in covenant with God, no doubt. Therefore, it happens under the power of God, for sure. But our experience of it is a letting go, and that every new beginning is prompted by an ending. And at that intersection of ending and new beginning is the kind of scary stuff that makes you say, if you're Abraham, she's my sister. Because I'm not quite sure yet I've come to trust Yahweh on that level. There, there's not yet a new beginning there because I haven't come to the end of having to manage life myself. She's my sister. And we, you know, we just walk through this, through the Pentateuch, Joshua, Judges, kings, prophets, up to John the Baptist. And we see this story played out over and over again right up to today. 
So the way this last part of the story works, the, what, what's really happening here if we think of Mark as a piece of literature in its historical context, that likely Mark is telling this story because it's written, most scholars think, to mistreated Christians in Rome. Followers of Jesus who are harassed and persecuted, they're not just thought of as dumb and sort of out of phase with you know, kind of human progress, but they were seen usually as a dangerous cult. They were seen as dangerous for one set of reasons by Rome and the power of Caesar. They were seen as dangerous by traditional Jews for another set of reasons. And for those who believed in the Roman pantheon of gods, they were seen as atheists and dangerous for another reason. So this was literally a group of people who no one understood, no one liked, no one respected. And so this pivot point that Peter was going through in the first followers Mark knew that other people were going to have to go through, and I would say that we're going through today, that the steady drumbeat of modern atheists, the steady drip, drip, drip of pop media, the just steady little flow of rejection of the church makes this, I think, an issue for us today. I mean, these first followers of Jesus knew that what he was saying involved genuine risk. They knew that John the Baptist had been beheaded Did you hear what I just said? They knew what standing up for God meant. And that whatever Jesus was saying here about this sort of cruciform life, this might mean real physical danger. And therefore, then you get to this famous part of the passage where if you look, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, they must. And now here he's sort of probing the real issues of followership. So he says, first of all, they must deny themselves, which just simply means to cease to make the self the object of one's life and actions. I mean, this is what's all over the epistles of Paul. For instance, Ephesians 4, put off your old self. That's synonymous language to denying yourself. So put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, right? Can you hear it again? Your former preconceptions, your former prejudices, put that off because it's corrupt through deceitful desires, right? The desires to avoid a cruciform life of following Jesus. He says, but rather put on the new self, that's created after the likeness of God, which of course the likeness of God is what we see in Jesus. So what he's getting at here is something like a reckless abandonment to God and his purpose, a sustained commitment to transformation, which then leads to the ability to discern and say no to disordered desires. And here again, we're probably supposed to hearken back to Jesus' temptations. No, I'm not gonna jump off this high place. No, I'm not gonna turn these rocks into bread. But this, I think if we're honest, raises questions. Again, if I give myself in reckless abandonment to God, will I be safe in that process? Or maybe you wonder, will it be good for me? Like you might see, well, I think I can see how it might be good for God and his purposes, but will it be good for me? Does God intend my good in this? Or is this covenant business kind of utilitarian? Like God has something he's up to and human beings are just sort of pawns in his game. Or does he mean good for me? You might wonder, is God and his plan and his way of achieving that plan, is it good? You wouldn't blame Syrian Christians for wondering. How's a Jew supposed to think of that after World War II? What's it mean when a cherished saint dies young? Lots of us struggle to see anything good in Keith Green dying in a plane crash at 30-something, right? You go on and on and on. How is this good? And so Jesus then says, you take up your cross. And in some ways, this is synonymous with the next phrase of just follow me, in that taking up your cross, living a cruciform life is just kind of the way of life that we're to pick up. 
in the message, Eugene gets it this way, don't run from suffering, embrace it. Self-sacrifice is the way, the Jesus way of saving yourself, of being your true self. And then Jesus says, follow me. And here again, I want you to hear this in continuity with the Abraham story and with the creation of covenant. So that if you think of, you know, the early part of the Pentateuch of of the patriarchs and calling of Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and how that story unfolds all the way to Joshua. Can you picture that? Now, now you get to Joshua and you get to that famous chapter in Joshua 24 where the covenant's being renewed. And so lots of you have had this scripture probably on a hanging in your house or something, but I want you to hear it in its narrative as it unfolds where Joshua says, look, you know, God is renewing his covenant with his people. And Joshua 24 recounts the whole story from Abraham up to that moment. And then you have these famous words where Joshua says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors, serve the Lord. And now comes a sentence that lots of us had on bumper stickers or whatever. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And that kind of moment, it was happening to Peter, where what Jesus was saying made no sense. But Jesus is saying something very similar to what Joshua said to the historic ancient people of Israel. This is a moment where you will have to choose who you will serve your own internal desires, your own preconceptions, your own prejudices, your own pre-notions about how things are, or you will go through the wrenching experience of seeing something real and true put before you, whether it's the Messiah himself or a sheet let down from heaven, that you'll see what's true and go through the wrenching experience of changing your mind. And so follow me means something like, make me your leader and I'll show you how to think and live in the Jesus way even when it's seen to be ridiculous or madness by the world. Been a lot, of, a lot of talk, of course, this week, rightfully so, the death of Billy Graham. And, you know, you, you see a lot of people saying that we, we won't have another Graham in our lifetime, and I'm quite sure that's true. Um, but there's much more to be said about that. And I think the much more is the world that gave rise to him is gone. It's not that he's gone. It's not just that he's gone. The world in which a Graham could arise is gone. It may come back, but it's not coming back in our lifetime. I mean, there's no way in our sort of present post-Christian secular culture that a Graham-like figure could could arise. Now, of course, God can do anything. But if we're not going to have another Graham, and if the world that gave rise to him is gone, well, now what? And I wonder if the answer to that isn't in this passage. A quiet, humble, human transformation that is experienced for the good of others. Sort of good deeds, good words, manifesting just in these humble little Jesus metaphors of salt and light and yeast, that maybe this can be the true religion that penetrates our day and our age. I mean, it shouldn't need to be said, but we don't live in the late 30s or early 40s. We don't live in that post-World War II Americana optimism that had kind of a a civil Christianity to it that allowed a Graham to be Graham. And by the way, he was my biggest hero, so none of this is a comment on him. It's more of a social religious comment. So what what do we do in our day? And I I think it might be something like what I said. And then finally, Jesus says, for whoever would save his life 
That is to say, if you see the danger that, be, that could be coming from Rome and other Jews and, and from kind of Roman religionists, meaning, uh, you know, sort of the pantheon of Roman gods, if you see what's coming and you engage in fear-based disloyalty, if you desert Jesus when trials comes, then instead of saving your life, you're going to lose it. And then finally, for just, I can hear Jesus saying something like, so think about it. What would it profit you, profit you to gain the whole world? That is to say, to be a winner as defined by any context or era. Did you catch that? So, because in every context or era, winners are defined differently. So what if you were to, to be the winner in any given age and yet forfeit your soul? Think about there your Psalm 139 self. That before you were formed in your mother's womb, I knew you and I had a plan for you and I called you into covenant relationship with you. Like, what would it profit you to win by the world's definitions and then forfeit your true humanity? So tying this all together in a Lenten way, I would suggest something like this. The, the simplicity of spiritual formation and the, simplic the simplicity of Lent lies in its intention. Just what do you intend? If, like me, a cruciform life looks difficult to you, what do you intend about that? Do you intend to move in that direction or do we see it and kind of think, I don't know, I'm actually ready to go in that direction? But that gets it down to its most simplicity. What do you intend? For the formation that's called for in Jesus of deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Its aim is to bring every element in our being, working from the inside out, into harmony with the will of God and the kingdom of God, into, again, putting it in the sense of, of the Pentateuch, into covenantal faithfulness. And so denying oneself and living a cross-shaped life and following Jesus, this is where it gets really stark, and, and this is where the, the reality of Jesus' words are meant to help us. When he helps us see in this passage that we're either going to deny Jesus or deny the world. He helps us see in another place that we can't love both God and mammon, which is to say the, the, the power that lies behind the ability to purchase things, the, the power that lies behind, we would say today, consumerism, that you can't love both God and that. Or when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, that means an intentionality of making other things second. So as we come now to a quiet moment, maybe you can be held in this, this time of quiet um, with this thought. That in Lent, as we begin to discover the disfigured bits of our lives, and when we begin to see issues that are similar to Abraham or Sarah or Peter, I just want you to know that you make that discovery under the umbrella of Genesis 12.3, of divine blessing, of promise, of being named, and of God's utter, complete covenant faithfulness. You are not left on your own as you discover disfigured bits. You discover them in New Testament terms of grace, of mercy, of everlasting kindness, of the complete, competent love of God. And under that umbrella, you are free to recognize and work on 
your disfigured bits.